The Rural Health Voice, Episode 68, Rural Leadership. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. Why should rural people get involved in national advocacy? National Rural Health Association President John Gale joined me to discuss his views on the future of rural health. Well, welcome, John. Glad to have you here on the show. Thank you, Beth. Pleased to be here. Absolutely. Now, I have you as the Senior Research Associate for the Population Health and Health Policy Program, uh, Muskie School of Public Service at the University of Southern Maine. What does a population health and policy researcher do? What all does your job entail? <laughs> um, it's a. I have a very broad portfolio, and essentially, much of what we do is focused on rural. We've been a federally funded rural health research center for twenty five or more years, and I've been with the center for twenty two, and I focus on a really look at trying to figure out how we build systems of care. Prior to joining the research center, I managed physician groups in primary care and behavioral health. And so I, I really have always had problems with the separation of services. So a lot of what I try to do is work with rural providers and think about how we start putting behavioral health in together with primary care, um, population health around wellness and um, the things that keep us healthy rather than just trying to take care of the things that make us sick. And uh, also it's just, I have the uh, pleasure of working with critical access hospitals for now for 20 some odd years and ever since the program started. So it's really, uh, it's a fun job because I get to look at all aspects of healthcare, draw on what I've done in the past and get to think a little bit outside of the box about where we're going in rural health and what we're doing. Yeah, you, you made a comment that, that striked a chord with me. You said something about, you know, being interested in what makes people healthy more than what makes people sick. And, you know, one of the things that I try to emphasize for the Virginia Rural Health Association is we aren't just concerned about health care. You know, it's not just what goes on in hospitals and in clinics. It's the health of the population. You know, do they have healthy water? Are there good job opportunities? Can they get insurance? Are there places to go take a walk? And, and it's that whole big picture. Exactly. I, I think we, because of the way we pay for health care, we've fallen into the trap of being uh, more oriented towards curing illness and disease than we are keeping people well. Essentially, we haven't really paid for it very well. And so um, there's a lot that we need to do. I grew up in a rural community. I can remember um, there were no places to walk. There were no sidewalks. Um, I mean, we were out through the fields as kids running about and playing and uh, able to do those sort of things. But there's there's just many people in rural communities don't have the opportunities to exercise properly. I mean, I know on some of the narrow roads that I we lived on, 
cars or trucks coming the other way didn't leave a whole lot of room for people walking on the side of the road. So they need places to exercise. Um, food and healthy foods are a huge issue. It's, it's a little bit funny to think about because so often – um, I know growing up in a farming country, we always had fruits and vegetables. My grandmother and my mother canned. We put food away. We had we raised animals. And so we were able to eat properly. But there are a lot of people who are in rural areas that are less agricultural, perhaps you know, mining country. Um, we've, we've used the phrase food deserts to um, characterize those places where getting fresh fruits and vegetables and produce can be very difficult. And that's not an uncommon problem in rural areas. Well, when I think about all the places, if there's not a grocery store, if you're, if you're dependent on the, you know, the local convenience store, there's not going to be a whole lot of good options. No, there really aren't. And and what they do get, the quality of some of the produce can be really, uh, really less good, less good mm-hmm. than it should be. So um, it's it's a real problem. And I think we don't always recognize that. So ha- uh, to me, I, I want to think about as we go forward um, that we're how do we develop resources to help rural people be healthy. And you talked about growing up in Romaine. I don't think that any middle school kid says, I want to be a population health researcher when I grow up. (laughs) How did you first become interested in this field? Well, it's interesting. I had been managing physician practices for quite some time and um, had gone back to the Muskie School to get a degree in a master's in in health policy interested in, I was interested in it more to expand my view of healthcare rather than thinking it would change my um, my direction of my career and lo and behold that it did after uh, completing the degree I really found that I enjoyed the work and was offered an opportunity to stay at Muskie and I did so it, what appealed to me is to think broadly about healthcare um, in a way that perhaps maybe some researchers don't, because I understood how to bill for healthcare, I and all of the administrative things that make it difficult. I love the policy side, and I also love the uh, the idea that I could draw on my background. Uh, what is particularly interesting to me is I'm. By nature, I'm a historian. I spend a lot of time thinking about the past and, you know, looking how it moves forward. And that, to me, was very exciting because if we look back at some of the things that we've done, the accountable care organizations that were such a big part of the ACA are very similar in many ways to managed care that we tried in the 80s and 90s that didn't go so well. So thinking about that what worked from the past, what didn't work, and what can we do differently to to make those things effective and, and successful is really where I like to spend a good part of my time. And your time is spent doing a lot of public research, and your list of published research is long and impressive. <laughs> Thank you. How, how do you choose which topics to explore? Well, fortunately, there, there are two things. We are funded for a large part of our work by the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy. And so 
a large part of what we do is based on their needs and um we're their client in many ways. And so in terms of where they're working with either critical access hospitals or rural health clinics or issues related to the opioid epidemic, that um, that's where we tend to go. Um, and within that, I, you know, it's fortunate that I'm interested in those activities and, and been fascinated by it. But also we can then take a look at, all right, what is, try to help the office and other funders think about what's coming next. You know, the, a perfect example for me is we've spent a lot of money over the last number of years, five, seven years on the opioid crisis, and it's still a problem. But at the same time, there are other problems in substance use that that tend to get a little less attention. So alcohol is still the biggest problem uh, for any single substance in rural areas. We worry about overprescribing of opioids, but we should be worrying just as much about the overprescribing of benzodiazepines. So there's just, you know, it all ties together in a way that I think is is for me just exciting and intriguing. Um, there's no shortages of issues for us to, to look at. And at the moment, I've been spending more time thinking about the future of rural health. What can we do and how does it change? Um, because I think in many ways, uh, a perfect example is I, I look back at the current concern of rural hospital closures. And there have been estimates of anywhere between 250 to 400 to 500 hospitals at some financial risk for closure. Look, going back through the work I've done, we've been worried about hospital closures going back to 1973 or so, after the uh, a few years after the implementation of Medicare. And the reasons for those closures vary, but I don't think we ever think about it. So um, a series of state-level demonstrations fed into the Medicare Rural Hospital Flexibility Program, which created... Uh, as part of that critical access hospitals. And now we're in another wave of closures driven in part by the realization that our system wasn't as strong uh, foundationally as we would have liked during COVID, but also other reasons and other changes. So um, if all these hospitals are still at risk and we've managed to pay them an enhanced reimbursement for what do they do for, for the services they provide and they're still closing, what do we do next? And to me, that's the challenge. And, and you glossed over this, but I want to dig a little deeper. You've been involved in the National Rural Health Association for over 20 years. What changes have you seen in rural health during that time? In many ways, we're still struggling with some of the same problems, and that's a bit of a frustration. But it also shows how difficult and intractable those problems are. But we've moved away from, I think, uh, the sole focus or primary focus on providers. And we've begun to incorporate other issues. So behavioral health was not a big issue in the National Rural Health Association when I first became involved. Actually, at the time I became involved with NRHA, I'd also been part of, uh, on the board of the National Association for Rural Mental Health. But as things evolved, I began to see that I could have more of an impact dealing with the issues of behavioral health and substance use and mental health services in the broader 
hint of NRHA. Uh, we've begun, we've become more aware of the needs of public health. Um, we've become much more aware of the needs of the community than perhaps we might have been before. Uh, I firmly believe that unless we engage communities in thinking about their health and the services they need, we may not be able to get to this, the resolutions that we want. You know, We're currently looking now at the idea of new models. So in uh, the coming year, CMS will release the guidelines and regulations for the rural emergency hospital. And while that might be a great option for some communities whose hospitals are struggling, they have to be involved in that process. Do they understand what the change will be? Will they use it? Will they support it? I mean, one of the problems I see in with some rural hospitals is the bypass issue. Commu members of the community go elsewhere for their services. Yet community leaders will tell us how important the hospitals are to as a source of jobs and a source of um, an ability to recruit people to the community and businesses uh, as an important resource, and I don't disagree with any of that. But if they're not supporting the hospital, how is that going to work? So for me, it's really thinking broadly about what we need to do, where we need to go, and what are the best services to meet the needs of our rural populations. Why do you think it's important for people living and working in rural communities to be involved in high-level advocacy groups such as the National Rural Health Association? You know, it's very interesting. I, I, I think rural tends to get glossed over in many cases. Um, it's interesting. I have a colleague um, from another institution who does not work in rural health, and once asked me uh, the question, said, "Well, if rural is so bad, you know, people can't get health care. There's poverty. There's lack of education. Why are we investing in rural communities? Why don't they move someplace else?" And I. I, I, ha I think there's more of that attitude than some of us may realize. Uh, there's the assumption that always that living in a rural community is a choice. Um, that's not always the case. So I, I really think it's important for us to promote how important rural the rural part of our country is to the community as a source of natural resources, um, Many, many of our, a higher percentage of our veterans come from rural communities. Um, farming, uh, agriculture, uh, the extractive industries are all important, and it's an important part of our culture. Um, so I, I think we need to continue to advocate for rural because not everything that works in an urban community will work in a rural area. And if you think about it, our our rural communities are becoming much more diverse than they ever have been. And if we don't address that diversity, uh, we risk leaving people behind. And the, just the small numbers mean it's difficult to promote services uh, and health, health equity. And the other thing I truly believe is that every person in this country deserves basic level of good, solid health and health care, and that whole concept of health equity, and how we ensure that that happens in a rural community has to be a little bit different because we don't have the same level of resources and we have further to travel than, than others. And so can we use technology? Can we use some other resources to do this a little differently? And I think we can 
meet the healthcare needs and the health needs of rural communities, but we have to think differently about it. And you not only got involved, but you decided to join the NRHA leadership. You're the current president of the National Rural Health Association. Why do you think people choose to step up and accept extra responsibilities within advocacy organizations? Well, I think we're all committed to it. And and certainly you will be following me this year. So you've made similar decisions. But, you know, after 20 years, I had been involved with... uh, a variety of volunteer activities. I've served on the board. I've been the chair of the Policy Congress. And I think it's important to give back. And uh, on top of it, we just have an amazing group of people who are involved from the staff and the leadership and, and members. I mean, I've been a member now 20 some odd years, and it's amazing the people that I've met in just the most uh, odd situation. So I, I did one of my first site visits to a critical access hospital in uh, Oklahoma in 19, probably 1999 or 2000 and met Paul Moore, who was the uh, director then uh, of the administrator of Atoka, of the hospital in Atoka. And we've become friends and colleagues. He went to work for the uh, Office of Rural Health Policy. And so we've been connected now for 20 plus years. And I think of others that are friends, Lisa Davis, uh, John Barnes, and others that we just go back a long way. And these are people that are committed to the health of rural communities. And so it's it's really, it is a little of extra work, but it's not certainly overly burdensome. And it's a chance to work with people who share a similar level of passion and doing the right thing. Oh, absolutely. I can definitely count some of my best friends as people that I've met through NRHA events. And so speaking of NRHA events, you know, typically they have a number of conferences during the year. And as president, you would have hosted all of them, but COVID had different ideas for 2021. How has that changed how NRHA does its work? Well, it's it's interesting, and it has been a bit of a disappointment to me because the face-to-face meetings are such fun. And it, I learned so much from listening to people out, not only within the sessions, but outside of the sessions, because you can have honest conversations. But it's, it's forced us to be virtual. Um, and I think we've been really successful. We've... Um, I know Pat, Pat Scow before me had one meeting, uh, I think we did the Policy Institute um, face-to-face, and then everything went virtual, but we've worked with a good vendor. The staff has done, have done an amazing job, and we've been able to actually do quite well. Our conferences have been successful financially. Uh, we've been able to keep people engaged, which I think during COVID is, has been so important. And we've learned that we can operate a little bit differently. Now, I don't think, you know, I'm not one of those folks on the tech side who thinks that now that we can do things virtually, we should do everything virtually, because I think there is something that's lost and some connections that deteriorate a bit. But I think we can get that back. But uh, but what it has told us is that we can pull together during these difficult times and we can use technology to keep our members engaged. Uh, certainly from the advocacy side, uh, it has been busier than 
ever in terms of the things that are going through Congress and, and in this administration and in previous administrations have begun to recognize how important rural issues are to the country. And so while it uh, some of the fun was taken out of it by not being able to be face-to-face, uh, it's also made what we do that much more important. Well, and thinking about what you said about, you know, more of the country recognizing um, the importance of our rural communities and going back to some of your earlier comments about, you know, why don't, why do we need to invest in rural? Yeah, I think back to, you know, something that I learned at a previous NREJ conference was um, a gentleman from Alabama was talking to his state elected officials about why they needed road improvements um, and their the legislature was like, you know, we gave you a bunch of money for roads. Why should we do this again? And he was like, you know, where do you think your food comes from? Where do you think your water comes from? Where do you think your timber comes from? Where do you think your power comes from? Where do you think your clothes come from? And I think that, you know, one of the things that rural America needs to do a better job communicating is that if you don't invest in rural communities, you're not investing in the nation as a whole. Oh, exactly. And and I also don't think people are, often are aware, you know, it's and we all do. We all see the world through our own lenses and our own boundaries. But it, at the end of the day, there are there's only so much space in this country. And if you think about living in some of the larger urban areas, there is such congestion that there's a different quality of life in rural areas. And I think we're seeing some of that now, particularly with the ability to work remotely, a lot of rural communities are starting to see a resurgence uh, in their populations. Now, and the trick then, I think, is how do we integrate those folks? And then how do we create jobs either virtually or face-to-face that replace some of the extractive industries and others that may be declining? And that's one of our biggest problems is that uh, the rural economies are not doing as well. Um, The jobs aren't available. Health insurance isn't easily because of the way folks work, they're not in bigger employer with bigger employers, so they don't get health adequate health coverage. So how do we do? How do we bring that around and 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 provide jobs that are interesting for young people in rural communities so that they can stay? I mean, so much of the out migration from rural areas has less to do with the fact that it is that it's a difficult place to live, and much more to do with the fact that there aren't jobs and there aren't the career opportunities and can we provide some of that and bring that back so i we have a lot of thinking to do for the future and what do you see as the biggest challenges to rural health in the future i think understanding what our needs are and how to provide them you know i i look back at um different programs and i think about hospitals hospitals are a great example if you think about it many of the hospitals that are exist in this country were built before the freeway system was built and now that we have freeway systems and people are able to travel better and get to place from place to place a little bit faster um we're seeing less use of those hospitals and perhaps uh, we need to. 
or, or they should be using. And in part is part of our, uh, we don't have health planning and there's a, we depend on market forces to, to make decisions about services. But we need to rationalize. We need to begin to make sense of what services are there. And I think about um, some of the changes in population. Our, our rural communities are routinely older. Uh, folks have more chronic care needs. They are getting to the point in their lives where they may need some sort of support in housing. And how do we begin to develop that? And can we use some of the existing resources to build the services that we need? So I think we are, we, we, I'd love to see, and, and I, I know this is probably my own background, but I believe that some sort of health planning is necessary in this country uh, as we move forward. And it, it, if only to make sure that the people who live in rural communities can get the things that they need. Um, if you think about it, it's very difficult to get dental care in rural communities. There's a shortage of, a shortage of dentists and, and professionals. Uh, we have a shortage of primary care providers. We have a shortage of mental health and substance use counselors. We have a shortage of specialty care. And people travel further. They, um, they may have to take more out of their pocket to be covered because of the type of the health insurance they have. And I think we, we have to look at rural in terms of a health equity lens. Um, it's very important to do. Um, and, and so how do we take care of rural? And then how do we take care of the, um, of the diverse populations? So many rural areas uh, have large immigrant populations from folks moving in, uh, coming to the United States many of them from agricultural areas or and they follow some of the agricultural and food production style jobs um, your present your podcast recently about pride in Virginia is another I mean there are people from the LGBT community in rural areas and how do they get care how do they how do they engage with providers who understand their unique needs and this is i think even a bigger challenge for rural providers they typically are generalists but they have to understand how to engage people from different backgrounds uh, i don't think it's possible to train someone in every single level of of sensitivity and awareness that they may need but how do we help people learn to ask the right questions? You know, I, if I don't understand someone's background, it's not that I don't want to, it's just I don't know. And how do we learn to, to ask those questions and engage back and forth? What do you see as the responsibility of current leaders like yourself to assure that future generations are interested in rural health issues? Well, I think yeah, I think that's important. We've got to bring younger people into the leadership of NRHA. Uh, a number of us have been doing this for quite a few years. Uh, it's been tremendously satisfying. But how do we bring younger folks into that? And part of that is to make them aware of the differences in rural, um, how it relates to the country, uh, certainly putting in rural training tracks in various health professions, disciplines uh, across the board would be very important. And then also expose them to the fact that that rural communities can be really interesting places to live. They're, they're vibrant. Uh, 
They have a level of diversity that I, I think may not always be recognized, which makes it makes them much more diverse and um, invigorating for a lot of folks. And I think we need to be more proactive in bringing younger folks into the fold. If someone's considering rural health research as a career, what advice would you have for that person? Um, I think finding the right program, the training programs that are interested in rural, and there are many, you know, you know we have it here at the University of Southern Maine, uh, the University of Minnesota, uh, ETSU, East Tennessee State University, uh, the University of North Carolina, there are a number, University of Washington, a number of programs with good training tracks. The other is, to my mind, is to get some experience in the healthcare field. Uh, I, I can't tell you how much my applied experience working with physicians and providers really informs what I do day to day, because I, I'm a firm believer in looking at research. When I was in the field, I, I read research articles with one eye, which was what do I do with this? And how can I use this to make my practice, uh, our patients better? And that's what I think is important. I'd also be, I also encourage people to think about the history of rural health and what we've done, because I believe there are lots of good ideas floating about. Not all of them are brand new, and we tend to inform our current thinking um, about policy and programs with our view of the past. And having, you know, uh, for example, uh, I was interviewed recently by a reporter uh, about COVID in rural communities and uh, the issue of whether or not hospitals were making decisions about which patients to take since their uh, ICUs were full and their beds were full. And she had said to me, well, we've never been through anything like this before. And I thought about it for a moment and said, well, yes, we have. We've been through polio. I remember having classmates in grade school with polio. Uh, we've had the 1918 Spanish flu. And we fought, uh, we struggled with some of the main, same issues that we have now. People were a little nervous about the, uh, the vaccine uh, for polio. Um, there were fights about masks and whether or not we should quarantine during the 1918 Spanish flu. Um, so there's a lot there. And then I also thought about this idea of, well, are they really Making, uh, how are they making decisions about whether which patients get admitted? And we've been through that in healthcare as well. When I first got involved in healthcare in the early '80s, one of the big issues was uh, was that hospitals were setting up um, ethics committees because they had to make decisions about which patients were able to get dialysis. At that time, dialysis equipment was very rare and it was very difficult. And there were waiting lines and hospitals had to decide when patients came in, how they made those decisions. Same thing is happening now with COVID and we should look to the past. We should begin to think about how we did these things to move forward. So last question, the question I ask all my guests, if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? Oh, wow. <laughs> For me, I, I think it, it's figuring out how to engage communities in this discussion. I think we don't do that very well. Hospitals and healthcare, we tend to We've tended over the years to think that we're the experts and we know best, but I don't think until we engage 
members of the community get their perspective, get what's and understand what's important to them that we can do that we can help as much as we would like. So for me, it's more than anything else engaging community members and thinking about what it takes to be healthy, what they need to do, what services are available to them. And then understand all of the the social determinants of health that plague us in rural areas around poverty or education and, and even community connection. Uh, we find that there's less social connection in many rural communities, uh, particularly for the elderly. There's a lot of isolation. How do we begin to bring back that sense of community that I I think we've lost in many rural areas, but I think we've lost as a whole in some of our, our in much of our country. I, I go back to the Putnam book on bowling alone, and I believe there's a lot to that. That that our ability to engage as as equals as members of a social structure really impacts our health, and I think that's part of where we need to go. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope to look to see you in person again in the future. Well, I hope I'm sure we will. In fact, I had my first face-to-face -face rural meeting uh, for the New England Rural Health Association uh, last week, and it was such a delight. It, it was great to be able to sit with folks and just face to face we all wore masks we did the things we were supposed to do we did find the outdoor areas where we would all hang out after after the meeting was over and it was great so i i hope we get to see each other soon thank you beth thank you that's john gale discussing the need for community engagement to create meaningful change if you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, make sure you check out our social media accounts. Visit our website at vrha.org and click the Facebook and Twitter logos on the top right of the page. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.